The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for uh, being patient if you're somebody who listens to the show. Thanks for being patient and waiting for me to be ready to begin to do this again. Um, I have been uh, really, I was really shaken up by the presidential election and people have been tweeting at me and emailing me asking about the status of the moment, whether I, I was going to do it, why I wasn't doing it. And I, I had started to feel that to talk about anything other than the state of the world now was irresponsible or, or quaint and, and sort of whatever side of the political spectrum you're on or a guest on the, the show is on, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you and, and, and listen and, and engage, but beyond even the normal politics, the, the language, uh, what I see is the language of, of hate and demagoguery coming out of the president elect and his team's mouths and their histories really uh really shook me to my core and shakes me to my core if i'm being perfectly honest and makes me question having these conversations about which are really often about an interiority about how to process events from the outside in a way that you can still take an empowering message from them and still produce your best self. Somehow, if I really think about all these conversations I've had over these few years doing the moment, I can largely boil them down to people articulating for us how they have defined their life events for themselves, how they have taken the events, somehow processed them use them to their own benefit, whether these are good events or bad, to come out the other side and, and produce remarkable creative work to get the most of their creative selves. And something about that in the wake of the presidential election started to seem less worthy. Although as I say it out loud now, maybe it's incredibly worthy because it's something that we're all going to, to have to do. But the reason... My guest today is the first guest back, and it's my good friend James Altucher, is that James wrote me an impassioned email and basically said, the fuck is the matter with you? Do the show. He said, you know, if it's that your TV schedule is stopping you, that's one thing. But if you're really allowing yourself to be stopped by world events, in a way, you haven't been listening to your own guests closely enough or something. So... Uh, I said to James, it's fine. If I should be doing the podcast, you're the first guest back. So James Altucher, thanks for being here. Brian, thanks for having me back on. And I'll tell you specifically what I said. I said, given that you are unhappy with the state of the election, the state of world affairs, then you have the choice of two worlds, a Trump world with your podcast in it or a Trump world without your podcast in it. And that's 100% your choice. That's your vote that you control. And which world is better? You have to ask yourself, which world is better? Probably the Trump world with your podcast is a better world in, in you know, for you and for the many people who listen to it, as opposed to a Trump world without your podcast. Wouldn't you agree? 
Well, I, I mean, like, do you think a, a Trump world with your well, tell me a scenario where a Trump world with your podcast would be a worse world in your mind? Well, it's about the utility of the time we all spend, right? So the question I'm trying to figure out is how do how are what's our obligation now? What's the obligation if you think like I so if if you think that this is a big step forward in the world, this administration coming in, then this this piece of this doesn't a, a apply to you. But if like if if like me, you feel civil liberties are are being threatened. If you feel that what you're seeing is the beginning of a rollback on civil liberties, and I want to find a better word than civil liberties, because uh, I think we, I feel like certain words that are, are are words we've all been taught in classrooms, we've just programmed ourselves not to really listen to. So freedom is a better word. Uh, I wish there were even a better word. But if you really feel freedom is going to disappear, freedom to speak, freedom to congregate, uh, freedom to write what you want to write in a public forum, if you really think these freedoms are going to go away, what's your obligation in terms of how you spend your time? Well, again, I asked that question do you think it's better for you to be silent and moping in your room, or is it better to bring on people whose opinions you value and and bring them onto your podcast and and have conversations to a, a much larger audience? So essentially, you could have impact. Like Brian, you've been gifted and, and blessed with with a platform, and now is what the platform is for. Not for a world where we're all having a party, but for a world where you personally feel is there's risk in this world. Why wouldn't you use that platform to say what you want to say? Why would you shut it down? Is well, really, right. really my question. Regardless of how you feel about Trump, actually, this is really how you feel about your issues and what you want to say to the world. You know, again, it's a choice of do you do you try to make the world a better place with your voice or do you not care? No, I mean, I, I, look, I, I wasn't I, I, I wasn't really thinking that I, I wouldn't do this anymore. What I was really thinking about was how to do it. Right. Was what, what is the, the right expression of it? Meaning, is the show still organized thematically around the lives of people who found a way to maximize their creative vision in whatever area well you know let's 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 think about that for a second because i love the concept of this show it's called the moment because it's about uh, ostensibly that moment in a person's life and for many people there's many moments but the uh, about that moment in a person's life where they feel either stuck or they hit bottom and they have to kind of rise up from that and to some extent you're having a moment maybe not the moment but a moment and I think for many people around the country, they're either having a moment or they're afraid that the moment is going to happen over the next four to eight years. And they might be right. We, we don't know, but they might be right. And, and your view is, is that uh, you're scared of this. And so what is better than giving people the tools as seen through the eyes of so many of your great and impressive guests, giving people the tools to kind of rise up from that moment to create better versions of themselves. That's why this podcast is valuable, as opposed to, let's say, uh, some comedy podcast or whatever. By the way, those are valuable, too. They are. So, I mean, I got a letter the other day from a guy who um, had a traumatic brain injury in, in recovery, was listening to a lot of this stuff, and, and talked about how the value of people who entertain and how, what a gift it is for those people. And he was sort of 
talking about, he also was saying, you know, do the podcast more, but, uh, and talking in a, in a bigger way about the TV show and about just in general, the value, what he realized when he was convalescing, he said, he suddenly realized the value that of entertainers, but for entertainers, sometimes it's, it's hard when the world is fucked to not think it's trite. Yes. To engage in this stuff. Yes, but I, I'll go to an example, like a, a, an amazing example of, like, let's say John Stewart in The Daily Show after 9 11. Like, how do you sure. come back from that and do comedy? He, he, he aired his first show after 9 11 on September 20th, so nine days later, and he had a preamble like you just had, and he even cried during it. And then they went on. Fuck, should to I business. have cried? Would it have been better if I cried? Should I? <laughs> we can roll back. I'll cry if you need me to. No, no, you did, you did your thing. And uh, uh, he teased. It up. I don't know if he bawled on uh, on the set, but he. But then they went back to to the business of doing yes. the do, and then they became so much better. Also during the 2004 election, during the bailout, no, a gauntlet's you know. been thrown. You're right. Uh, I no, I think you're right, and that's and that's why. But so I want to now in, in terms in turning this just away from me and and to, to the but, show. By the way, yeah. I just want to say one more thing is that many people have said to me in the past, I don't know how many months or year or whatever. Hey, have you listened to Brian's show? Brian Koppelman's show with. X or Y. Like, have you listened to Brian's show with his wife, Amy, about depression? Like, that, people say, that changed my life. So, you're having, like, a lot of people think, oh, I voted, I did my patriotic duty, I'm done. And that, that's not your patriotic duty. If you think that moving a lever once every four years is patriotism and having a voice, that's wrong. What you're doing is, is real. I, I didn't vote. What you're doing is really voting. What I do when I, when I, or I attempt to do when I write or podcast or whatever is trying to have an impact on myself and then maybe other people. Well, I'm glad you just said that because, uh, about yourself, because I did not introduce you properly. So James, uh, James Altucher, who I, I said is my good friend, and maybe that's the most important thing, uh, is C- that we are James friends. James Altucher, comma, Brian's good friend. <laughs> yes. Is also uh, a terrific writer of incredible posts. Uh, in the old days, we would have just called them blog posts, but now, their posts. Uh, he's written a number of best-selling books. You can read about James, and there was a, a terrific New York Times piece a couple of months back about James and the Times that, that that you can find. His incredibly popular podcast, James Altucher Show, is I've been a, I think I'm the most frequent guest on that show. I think so. Even though like four times. Yeah, and then more. Like yeah, because then we also did the book ones. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, four or five times, but, uh, his podcast is, is, is terrific. And what James writes about is, um, how to transcend low moments, how to recognize where you are. I think a huge part of, of what you do that you don't talk about that often is it seems you are very good at locating where you are at a given time, locating where you are emotionally, where you are in, in terms of how you were, you feel you're doing like the old Ed Koch thing. Uh, how am I doing? It seems like you ask yourself that question regularly as a way to check in and then move forward. I think you have to do that because look at it from the point of view of when you're creating something. So you obviously have, have created this great show billions. I've, uh, started, uh, several businesses, but when you put your energy and soul into something, 
there's a cognitive bias that also kicks in without you even being aware of it, which is that you think your shit doesn't stink. <laughs> like it's impossible to think it. And uh, so you have to constantly take a step back and question yourself. Am I smoking crack about my own stuff? Like is everyone else saying, oh, Brian, that's nice, but they're really not thinking it. You have to kind of step aside and say, is this good or bad? Yeah. And is there a process by which you do that? Just constantly asking because no one is going to tell you the truth. If you, whenever I've created a business or I've shown it to every, anyone, they all say, Oh, that's a great idea. And you have no idea what they're thinking. So you have to constantly come up with metrics by which you decide this is good or bad. And you can't attach yourself to the result. You have to test a lot. You have to experiment a lot. Uh, you know, with, with the TV show, you, you kind of experiment or the network experiments by seeing ratings. It may or not be a good metric, but that's the metric. But it use. seems like you do it like, so I, I've been thinking about your journey. You know, we talked the first time you were on this podcast, we did the narrative arc of your, of your, of your life, the, the huge ups and downs that you experienced, but sort of tracking alongside that is this almost mythological like desire to be good. When it almost seems like your wiring and your parent, the parents that you had, had put you in a direction that your your instinct wasn't always to act correctly, right? And, and then and that so it feels to me like you're also doing like a moral check in all the time, and you've put a practice in place for yourself that allows you to check the wiring against what you know to be right. I think because, you know, I was in the hedge fund business, which you know very well about because you do a whole TV show about it. Yes. And what I saw, I mean, there's many layers of Wall Street, which is kind of the billionaire hedge funds, kind of the lower hedge funds. Then there's the investment bankers trying to sell you product. Then there's the pundits on CNBC and there's or, and, and Fox Business. And you've been and, like all those things. Oh, I've been Except all of the these billionaire things. part. Uh, but I've worked for stuff. the billionaires. Yeah. And I, yeah. so I've, I've, I've seen it all. And what I've seen mostly is that it's largely a scam. <laughs> and so, and and that's just, I don't mean it like all these people should go to jail, although I'm not going to say an opinion one way or the other on that, but, because I don't know, but it just seems like not, none of these people I wanted to grow up and be like, and I say this as a 48 year old, I'm supposed to be growing up, but none of these people I want to kind of grow up and, and be like, I didn't admire anyone. And in fact, I've always felt like washing my hands after I had any of these like right. meetings or going on TV. Like it just seemed like so much BS. So you had to take a step back and say, what's real, what's really important to me? What do I value instead of always trying to placate others so I could either raise money or build a business or sell a business or sell myself. But beyond that, it seems like you look at, like you wrote a post a while back where you talked about your own shortcomings as a parent. Yeah. and. And used it as a way to talk about being, you know, being a better parent or the way in which you love your daughters and all this stuff. But, you know, that's one of the things, like, nobody ever wants to say that about themselves. But of course, if you don't say that, if you don't look at it, you can't fix it. You can't make it better. How do you, what's the process by which you actually notice something like that? Like, oh, I, I allowed a bunch of events to happen. The result of this is I, I always loved my girls, but the result of this is for a moment there, I wasn't my best self around them. I have to be my best self. Like, what is that process? Because like, I, I remember reading that piece just being blown away by your, like, you know, courage is an overused word, 
Uh, so it was courageous to publish it, but it's even courageous to me to dive into that material for yourself. Well, well, you know, like I look at you and, and Amy, you guys are great parents. Uh, I see all the time your parenting in action and I can compare. I don't do what you guys do for your kids. And so then I look at why, like, and I look back to the day they were born. I did not want to, you know the story. I did not want to have kids. The day my first daughter was born, I went to the Mayfair Club where the you- The poker place. Yeah, yeah. yeah you based you rounders around. You rounders used to play there. Rounders basically set there, yeah. In 1998. And uh, uh, I went to play poker. It was a great day. I got a wheel. It was the first time I was playing seven cards or high-low. And uh, they served me a meal for free and everything. Ingrid wouldn't let me in at first. Our friend I, Ingrid, I thought she kicked you out. But yeah, then she, you I talked her in. into it. I'm a charming person. and uh, uh, But I had to kind of say, okay, I, I brought one girl into the world, or really my ex-wife did. She brought them into the world. I did nothing. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the second daughter came into the world. And now... I have these creatures who they depend on me and I, you grow to love them and you love being a father, but you don't love everything about being a father. I hate ballet. And for whatever reason, my kids are into ballet. So you, when you know, when you have to go to like a ballet performance, it's like nine, it's like 9,000 hours of three year old kids like dancing ballet. And it boggles my mind how bored and insane I feel at the end of it. But you have to go. That's what a dad does because your daughter's going to remember that you were there. And uh, so, so yes, I can admit that I hate doing these things and my kids even know I hate it. Why, why would I lie to them about it? But at the same time, I show up. I'm, I'm there for them and actions count more than just about anything else. You could say what you want. You could think what you want. But y you have to be there for your kids. You have to listen to them. You can't yell at them as much as you think you should. Kids are stupid, right? They're, right. they're, they're 13 years old. You would never willingly hang out with a 13 year old friend. And yet I hang out with my 14 year old all the time. I would never pick any other random 14 year old and say, Oh, let's be friends and go to the movies together. But I do that with my 14 year old. Yes. So, so it's not a natural action for an adult. Uh, of course, unless they're your kid, but it's still not somehow natural. And you have to figure out ways to do this. That, that's that, that a reason why you do it and a reason that benefits them. When you, when you are writing about this stuff, well, I have a couple of thoughts. One of them is because one of the things that I'm really interested in about you and the way you go through life is it does seem like there was a period of time, and I think you've talked about this stuff. I'm, I don't want to talk about stuff that only I – that. Amy and I know separately, but it does seem there's a period of time where you didn't see your daughters as much as you would have liked because you were in a living situation that didn't accommodate it so easily. Right. Have you talked about this ever? No. No, because out of the, uh, you know, I, oh, we're I, not gonna I, okay, I got it. No, no, but, but, I'll, but I'll tell you, I always, I have no problem saying anything that hurts myself, but I never say anything that hurts someone else that I might care about. Yeah, but I think there's a way to phrase it, which was you were in a living situation that didn't accommodate so well your daughter spending a lot of time there. Right. What's amazing to me isn't like everyone goes through weird periods of time, but you're most people would then be in denial to themselves. I think most of us live in a way where it's too painful in the short term to acknowledge our shortcomings. But we benefit so much from if we would. So like, how did you get yourself to go, oh, I, I have not been my best self for this period of time and I have to change. Like, what does that process 
feel like to you? Does it feel like depression that you come out of? Does it? Yeah. What is the it, like? What does that cycle feel like? Well, you know, people always think in terms of um, in any exciting or, or not so exciting life change that there's a beginning, middle, end. But the reality is it's usually the reverse. There's usually an ending, and then there's like the fog of war as you kind of come through that, and then there's new beginning. So look, you, you can you can do it with uh, yourself. There was uh, the moment podcast before Trump, it ended, then there's the, the fog, and like, what do I do? And you're publicly talking about what do I do, and you're confused, and there's despair, and then there's a beginning. Here's the first podcast since then. So that's kind of the real arc of a story in, in a weird way, or another way of looking at a, a transition. That's really smart. And, and so with my my kids, this came up recently with my oldest. She So, so as you know, I'm against uh, sending kids to college, but my kid's going to be 18 years old. She's going to be an adult. I, I wrote a book, even 40 alternatives, which I can't force her to read, but I throw it out there. I'm willing to even pay her to not go to college, but she wanted to apply to college. That's where we're at. So she wrote an essay, and the essay was about this period you're referring to. It's about literally this moment she had where she felt she became an adult, and it involved this uh, situation that I was going through. And... um and it I would say you got you got divorced. I mean, we can just say you were yeah. getting divorced. Yeah, but ha- but it was the specific moment where she realized something really bad was happening. Yes, and because she encountered a situation, and um, I don't mean to be so. Uh, usually, I'm very forthcoming, but I, I don't want to say anything bad about anybody else. But but what she did do was the, her essay, her college application essay about becoming an adult, puts me in a very bad light. Right. And so uh, she said, "Can you help me?" Write, rewrite this. She had already written the first draft and it was beautiful. And I said, sure, I think you need to portray me even worse. <laughs> so I think if we're going to be really honest about this situation, you have to say the worst things that happened. And then there's kind of a, an, an, a deeper undercurrent of honesty that's happening and people will recognize that. And she said, I don't want to portray you. Uh, so badly. And I said, I'm not asking you to betray me badly. I'm saying just tell the absolute truth. Like this is what happened and, and to, to, this is what happened to you and it involved me. And uh, uh, so she did. And uh, uh, I think you always have to explore what is the underlying truth in every situation. So if I, you know, here's a, here's a typical situation I see all the time. Uh, a, a teenager will be at the dinner table with their family and will start, will pull out their phone and start checking social media. And as a parent, you feel this revulsion, like kind of build up, like don't bring out that phone at the table. Like, you know, enjoy your life with your parents. And, you know, I realize, is that the right response? Like, she's never going to listen to me if I say that. And maybe the right response is, okay, maybe she's bored with me, just like I get bored of ballet, and she needs to just check out for a few minutes to re-energize, to re-engage with me. And just like any, let's say, introverted person sometimes needs to check out of a situation to to, to re-energize and re-engage. So you have to kind of like say about every situation that that causes an emotion, a strong emotion in you, that there might be another way of looking at it. So most people would... I mean, this is the thing that I think is so valuable about the way you have trained yourself. Most people reading something like that would end up reliving that terrible time, would spend a couple days filled with regret again about how they, why they weren't their best selves with their daughter at that time, 
then would beat themselves up, then would be trying to make up for it in some sort of a big way. Like there's, you can just picture the way that typically somebody would react to all that. But it seems like you've trained yourself, like really like taught yourself instead to very quickly take the lesson from it and do away with that emotional hand wringing. Yeah, Was that a process for you? Like how, it is how did you train yourself to do that? And what does it actually feel like? Because everyone goes through emotion. So some part of you must feel what most of us would feel, which was like, God, I hate myself. I suck. But then it seems like you. it would take me more time to then get to where I could write about it. Think, But it seems like you're able to like – You've you've put a rapidity in the process. Well, 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 and it and it and it is a process because let's take like two thousand one, two thousand two. I lost all this money after I sold yeah. my first. It took me years to bounce back from that. I'll give another example. Can I give the example from the set of when I visited? Yeah, you I think we talked about it on your show, but yeah, talk about it. Sure. So, so I'll just I'll mention it briefly. So, this is February twenty fifteen. I'm on the set of the you're shooting, shooting the, the pilot, pilot of Billions. Yeah, it's like an amazing thing for me. Like I'm meeting all these people i'm seeing you know one of my favorite directors shoot the pilot i'm hanging out with you and david and and it's it's a great experience i'm learning so much i get a call in the middle or i get a text in the middle emergency board meeting for a company i'm involved in i had nine million dollars worth of shares in this company and uh I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to, uh, I'm watching a show about billions and maybe they're going to sell this company. I'm going to double my money. I didn't, I had no idea what was going on. I got on this emergency call and they said, listen, the largest shareholder, uh, blah, blah, blah. There's a problem. Wells Fargo is going to shut the whole company down. <laughs> and so instantly the company was worth zero, uh, like within an hour. Like I, and it was, it was like a publicly traded company. It was, I had, I could have maybe sold the shares at some point, but I never did. And, uh, so I just lost this money like that hour in the middle of go on your set. And then I had to decide. So I was angry and upset and, uh, I had to decide, well, am I going to stay angry? This is the only time I'm going to be on the set of a show with my friends and learn all these things. And I love TV and love this, this what was looking like what this show was going to be about. Am I going to let this ruin my day? <laughs> and so I had to say, you have to decide which thoughts and actions are useful and which are not useful. So being angry and upset was not going to be useful for me. I went back on the set and had the best day of my life. So it was a great uh, example. How do you, okay. So how do you decide, like, and it's very useful now in this time period. I've been thinking a lot about Viktor Frankl. I used to talk about Viktor Frankl on this show a lot, Man's Search for Meaning, the book about Viktor Frankl when he was in concentration camps, uh, or concentration camp and figured out that he could give a different meaning to all this. But what's the, what, what happens when, when inside you, in other words, is it, do you put yourself do you, do you play a certain algorithm? Like, do, yeah, I, I get upset. What's the process? Yeah. I get upset, or I blame myself for being a bad parent, or hate myself, or whatever. And then, I, and then you have to consciously sort of practice saying this is not a useful thought. And so, some people. Ah, so you say those words to yourself. Yes, uh, and, and and you know. And this is what I was really addressing to you in that email I sent you about the podcast. You, you, every day you have impact on the world, bad or good. And two things that will guarantee your impact is not so good are regret and anxiety. So right. regret about the past or anxiety about the future. So, so if you want, you create the future with your impact today. 
And so nothing else. No uh, regrets and anxieties will not create a good good future for you. Just having a positive impact today and, and, and as we were discussing earlier, showing up, being there, being not being stupid, not being like stupidly optimistic. Like I wouldn't say, oh, this election makes me now stupidly optimistic or, stu- or, or even stupidly pessimistic and cynical. Um, you just have to take things as they are. And you're, the only thing you can do is have your own positive impact and, and try to affect the people around you. Sure. Like, I, I mean, I, I think that most of the time as humans, we catastrophize and we use anxiety as a way to sort of uh, protect ourselves. We believe the anxiety protects us from the eventuality or safeguards that's our emotions to, from the eventuality. That's a great way to put it because if if uh, if the lion jumps out at you in the jungle, you could say to yourself, oh, well, he's going to kill me anyway, so I'm just not going to even bother fighting it. <laughs> so that's a way of thinking negatively and, and, let, sure, and letting but, disaster uh, but, overcome you. But I remember, and, 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 I, and in general, I think... I've gotten good also at managing all that stuff. You know, I put lots of practices into place for myself. As you know, I do morning pages every day and I meditate every day and I take long walks and I I do a bunch of stuff to ensure that I don't catastrophize and I don't allow anxiety to win. Because generally what I know is uh, we have for the last long, we can decide how many years, but as a culture, moved forward, uh, been progressive. But, and I heard you talk uh, to Dubner on uh, your old podcast with, with him, which was great podcast. Oh, you were a guest host on that? Yeah, did three episodes of that Question show. Question of the day. Question of the day. Um, but uh, I heard you guys, and I remember you talking about why you don't vote and how presidential elections don't matter. Who the president is doesn't affect you on a daily basis. And at most for most of our lives, as... Uh, White men who ha, uh, are nowhere near the poverty line, I think that that's been true for most of our lives, that right. whoever's president doesn't affect your ability to go out and like live the life you want to live. I think as sentient white men, we're, uh, you're, uh, you're very aware that like uh, the world around you can be made better or worse, or at least I'm very aware of that. But when an event like this happens, I wonder how if you still think that it's true. Because an event like this happens where you know 36% of the country voted for this person. He said in his words and actions very clearly the things he wants to do. There are the the kinds of rollbacks on freedoms that I know you don't like. So I'm, 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 I guess I'm wondering, how do you think it does or doesn't affect the daily lives of people like you? Well, you know, it's a great question because, yes, you and I have the extreme uh, – particularly uh, – uh, uh, I want to address one part of that, but we definitely have the extreme white male privilege. Now, we're Jewish – and I'm a little shorter than you, so there's there's studies that show I could have income disparity because of 
height and so in some parts of the country because of being Jewish. But we live yes. in New York City. No, so, the, I, I agree. Live, as an by the way, worse, we're atheist Jews, or I'm an atheist Jew. But but you so I'm but an, an, you in every in the, way. You live in the capital of Jewish atheism, though, which is the Upper yes, West Side. And it of is New York true. I'm six feet, so I have that. I do have the six foot <laughs> you, advantage. You've been blessed as the tallest Jew in the world. Right. You and Gary Goldman are the tallest, two tallest. Uh, he's Jews six in inches the world. taller than I am. So, David Benioff too. But yeah, sorry. So 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 that's true. But. Okay, what's an important issue for both of us? Obviously, uh, for me, pro-choice. I have two daughters. You know, pro-gay marriage is very important. I've, you know, and, and not just because I know many people who are gay and married, but because like, you're right. Like civil rights and human rights, these are important issues. Um, the most important issue for me is war versus no war. Yeah, and I'm irrationally in favor of no war. I wouldn't have gone to World War II. I wouldn't have gone to any war. And you see this because you had an isolationist, uh, Governor George W. Bush, who said he would never go into any war, got elected president. And then, of course, we've been in nonstop wars ever since. So it's been a disaster. Like we, we, we sewed up the entire world in three years in, in the 1940s. And now 15 years later, we're still in. I can't, I can't even locate Afghanistan on a map, but you know, whatever, we're still there. And I don't want my daughters to go to war or even be forced at some point. So this is an important issue for me. Bernie Sanders was an isolationist. Donald Trump claims he's an isolationist. Hillary Clinton is a diplomat, so it's unclear. You know, she's been involved in administrations where there's been wars. So, so how will this, how will this affect me on the most important issue that, uh, occurs to me? I don't know the answer. We don't, you don't know the answer and I don't know the answer. So, but, and pulling a lever on, on election day wouldn't have decided anything for me. But doing a podcast where I say what I feel every single day or as, as much as possible, then that has an impact. Yes. I understand the voting thing and the way you look at the voting question. But I guess I'm, I'm asking in, in a, Post that decision, so after that decision, when you see this guy using Twitter, you know, it's funny, people say, in a way, like, looking at his tweets is is uh, ridiculous. But if you think of them as mission statements, because so people have decided the word tweet's a funny word, all it is is this guy sitting on his toilet on, the, on his iPhone or Android. Making spelling mistakes. Yeah. But if they are mission statements and... If he is saying things that are the kinds of things a warmonger would say, or if he's saying things that are the kinds of things a racist would say, or if he's saying things like, we'll take a look at it about whether there should be some sort of religious test. Or or, or, or or let's take it a step further. He, he has suggested, or somebody working for him suggested recently the possibility of internment, of looking into internment of Muslim Americans. Now, I personally do not believe anybody who's president would ever do that, like anybody I could conceive of that could get elected. But the fact that it was even suggested is really disturbing, given the, the horror of interning uh, Japanese Americans yeah, right. in World War II. So, so that's disturbing. But again... What are you going to do? You're going. The best thing you could do is what you're doing exactly right now, talking about it. Well, what do you think? What do you want to do? Like, what do you feel? What do you feel you want to do? Well, okay. So on my uh, recent guest on, on my podcast, I've I've because uh, I ask about these things. I brought on Ken Kirsten, who was an early supporter of Trump, and asked him some of these questions and got his answers. Um, 
Uh, it also has an air, but I spoke with Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, who um, predicted talk- Trump's victory, predicted Trump's victory a year and a half ago and predicted all the tr- techniques he uses. So it's not like he's saying in retrospect, like everyone. No, Scott Adams was ahead of it and knew every rhetorical device that Trump was using, every uh, old line con device he was using. He was, right. And, and so, uh, I mean, I would I get incredibly frustrated reading Scott Adams, but he was right about what would happen. And so one of the things he said, which I think is worth noting, is Trump and Hillary, but even more so Trump, oversold his positions and then backed down. So he oversold, everybody fact-checked him. It didn't matter, and this is just Scott's view, it didn't matter, what mattered was the direction. And that's what Trump was trying to elicit among his base of voters, which were not you and me. Uh, where we weren't part of the base he cared about. So, so he was overselling something that maybe perhaps he didn't believe in, um, to get people to vote for him. And, and, and that base was determined by polling and studies and so on, just like every election is, is determined. And so do we really know what's going to happen? I feel like we don't know what's going to happen regardless of who I liked or didn't like, but what I can do is continue supporting my friends who are building companies, who are innovating new technologies, who are building uh, social media connections, not just in the U.S., but all around the world and building platforms for that. Like, I really think we're moving towards a much more connected, apolitical world where where country borders are not as important as, hey, am I talking to an educated person in another country right now that we – the countries might not agree, but we can agree – and so we're the ones who are all all together creating the world, not these politicians meeting in Belgium or something to work on these climate accords or whatever. Uh, I think we're creating the world, not not the people, not necessarily the people who are, you know, running a few buildings in Washington, D.C. Well, yeah, and I think that's just utopian nonsense. Okay. I mean, I uh, think that that's... Uh, you're entitled to that. I think that that's... Uh, I think that that's... Uh, uh, was a possibility and was the world that... Obama was trying to create. But I see the uh, – when when a guy puts generals in every position on his cabinet, generals what I or, or see, billionaires. what I see, many generals, right? What I see is, is somebody preparing to use their particular tools and gifts. And so if you are shut off from – right, China, look at China. If you're suddenly shut off from connecting – to all those people, what happens? To me, it seems like, yes, that's the direction the world was going in. But my concern is that there's a giant scythe coming from the sky that is going to cut those cords, that these people want to cut those cords. Look, I think that's a legitimate concern and it's scary and I'm scared of the same thing. So, so- Which is why I'm uncertain, right? That's what I'm trying to say is the reason I'm I'm uncertain is scary. Because I don't feel I know what to do about what I think is happening. Hey, I'm podcasting with Altucher right now. Is everything okay? That's so good. You take calls from your your wife in the middle of a podcast. Like you're a good husband, parent. Wait, if it's Amy, that's why. I, yeah, if it's Amy, I have keep to this take on the call. podcast. By the way, don't edit that part out. That's fine. <laughs> so, uh, uh, look at Richard Nixon. Yes. Richard Nixon was the biggest communist red baiter in the world from 1947, his yes. appearance on the scene. Communist hater. He wasn't a communist. For a second, communist you said he was the yeah. biggest communist. No, he was a- Yeah, uh, communist hater. He was, communist he, hater, yeah. He was scandalous the way he would, you know- Right, and then, yes, he opened up China. But, but the reason he was able to do that is because 
everybody was like, oh, we are, we hate communists too. And he's on, Richard Nixon's on our side. That's why he won the biggest uh, election in 1972 ever. Of course, he was kind of fired two years later. But uh, we sort of then, he used that kind of, in a weird way, goodwill he had built up with all the other communist haters in the United States to go and open doors with China. So nobody could have predicted that from him. I'm not saying Richard Nixon was a good president, by the way, nor do I think, am I saying Donald Trump's going to open up relations with China in a different way? But he also doesn't want to, my assumption is, just like you have an assumption, I have an assumption. My assumption is he doesn't want to destroy anything. Now, we don't know yet, and we are – the crazy factor is still real. The crazy factor. That's yeah, – well said. The crazy factor. So so I don't know. And the best thing I can do is try to engage with people in not utopian discussion. So, so I agree. Maybe I could be a little too utopian, but in – not cynical discussion either. So here's what's happened in the past. Here's how we've survived it. Here's what other presidents have done. Let's also note that between 1970 and now, the poverty poverty rate has stayed at a, a solid 15%. Like no matter who was president, poverty rate hasn't changed. White, male, privilege, no privilege, just no president has changed it. What's what's changed the state of the world is kind of innovation and technology and and you know things in the economy that seem to be unrelated to the president. So yeah, so, so I don't want to take this into a, a political conversation because that's not the idea. But but it's it's interesting though to to again. But the crazy have factor when you say the crazy factor. So the fact to me that hey Jason, who produces this show, produces the Trump cast for Slate also, and he's in the room. Have you guys done a Trump cast on Alex Jones and his relationship with Trump? We had a conversation uh, with Stephanie. But you did talk about- What's the Trump cast? Oh, it's a great show on Slate. A really great, important show. I'm going to listen to it. So, um, but like when I see that uh, someone who's going to be the president of the United States doesn't repudiate Alex Jones and the Sandy Hook hoaxers, people who think Sandy Hook was a hoax- when I see the things that he will talk about Trump, and then I see that he can look at grieving mothers on the four-year anniversary of the death of their kids, and that he doesn't have the empathy to, and doesn't want to use empathy as a tool to heal, it speaks to his totalitarian aims. I, and I think that's you're right. what I, think, I don't know how to process. That's I th- where I'm lost. I think I'm lost there too. I think, look, uh, let's say, you know, two qualities that are good in a leader is, is, uh, exuding a, a sense of, of, of power and also exuding empathy. And I think Trump definitely has problems on the empathy front, which could mean lots of things ranging from he, he simply has problems on the empathy front to being a total psychopath. And I'm not saying he's either. Uh, I, I think he made an attempt at empathy with immigration, actually. He's trying to be empathetic with a class of working class, you know, white Americans in the flyover states that are living below the poverty line. He's trying to show, maybe in an artificial way, because he pulled to show it, but he, he's trying to show empathy there. But he didn't try to show empathy with us. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to, I don't want to get into the weeds on that, but that's national. I mean, to me, there, what he's falling into is this nationalism, right? So white Americans, poor white Americans, that plays to this nationalistic impulse. 
that he has so that he doesn't have to frame it in, even if he uses certain words of, of empathy towards them. The truth is, it's all these people he's, he's not being a- empathetic to. And it's the refusal. The reason I'm, I'm talking about this stuff is I'm trying to isolate why putting the normal practices in place for myself isn't working enough. Where I was, a- I'm able to focus and make the show, the TV show, because it's it's my work and it's what my you know it's it's sort of the thing that allows I, I'm able to gain total focus when I'm doing that. Did but it change writing at all after the election? Like because you were still filming the final we mostly, episodes. We were mostly done writing. Okay. And the last, we'd set so much stuff up that the last episodes were going to be what they were. I mean, I'm, look, the themes, thematically, I'm sure there are resonances to the world in the show. There always are going to be. Yeah. But it is, if I have to I- I isolate it, it's the fact that I don't have any faith that the person who's going to be sitting in that office is a humanist or clinically sane. So, so- And that makes it- because I think like the story that I was told my whole childhood is that the smart people, the smartest people, and maybe the people who were cowards, but the smartest people found a way to leave occupied Europe very early on. They left in 32, 33, 34, 35, like they left because they recognized an agent of chaos, evil agent of chaos. Not chaos like from the old show when we were kids, Maxwell Smart. But they they recognize that force. Good reference. Thank you. They recognize that force and they left. So, and that seemed, you can picture a doctor in 1933 with a booming practice and his kids in a good private school in Germany, coming home and saying to his wife, or coming home and his wife saying to him, I think we should leave. And then- their neighbors saying, but it's Germany. We, Our family's been in Germany for a hundred years. There's, yeah, he's just, look, he's a loudmouth. He's a boorish loudmouth. Only 38% of the people wanted to elect him, right? With Hitler, what was it, 34% of the people or 38, some number like that wanted it, you know, when the chancellor picked him, some right. small percentage of the people wanted him. And you could see that it looked like insanity to think that that person was going to cause that much damage. In fact, those people were right. And so if I'm right, how am I supposed to allocate the 24 hours in the day? Doing exactly what you're doing, which is bringing on uh, smart, or in my cases, trying to be smart people on the podcast and having these discussions and thinking about it. And, you know, connecting the world to your view, which is something that couldn't happen in the 1930s. You know, U.S. United yes. States did not know what was going on in Germany until we act, our troops actually entered Auschwitz. We didn't really know what I mean, was happening. I mean, our government happening. knew. Our government knew, and to its great shame, didn't do anything. Yes, didn't act. So, so, so when you say you would have been against World War II, would you have been against it even if you had the information that there were death camps? You know, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of evidence that Hitler upped the speed of how he was doing things because the U.S. entered Honestly, and Nicholson Baker has written a great book on this. Uh, we're probably both fans of Nicholson Baker. Look, I'm against any war that's going to kill, have 18-year-olds killing 18-year-olds. I'll go to the war, but I'm not going to send my two daughters to the war. And right now, the way the right. world's set up, only you, I can only send my daughters to the war. So I'm against that, no matter what, no matter who's getting killed. So, so which makes it a very unpopular opinion, but I'm, I'm utopian and irrational about it. 
Yeah. Well, I, I, I agree that government action rarely works. I would accept that it rarely works. But uh, look, maybe I'm, I go too I far. I mean, the six other million Jews in. died, right, in World War II when we entered it. <laughs> so it's not like we saved anybody. Like, they died. Uh, and so the important thing is, you know, as you mentioned in the beginning, is is how do you and I and everybody listening, how do we find meaning in our lives, given that there's so much uncertainty and chaos? So you mentioned a lot of scary scenarios, and they're scary, and they're uncertain. So, okay, how do we find meaning? Does it mean we move to Canada? I don't think that finds meaning in your life. I think you continue making great entertainment. As you say, there's a there's a role for entertainment, and you continue speaking like you do on on Facebook and Twitter and so on, and you and you consider continue doing a podcast which has a different audience and again trying to infuse meaning into it so that your voice is heard. And I think that's how we I know I buy that. And I certainly things. want to engage too. If you are listening to this and and I'm reachable at the moment BK at gmail.com and I'm gonna borrow uh uh, a tool from my friends, the reply all guys and say that, uh, I'm basically going to consider that inbox that I've answered. If you've written me before and haven't gotten an answer, I'm, I'm starting over. I'm, I'm starting the mailbox over. So the moment BK at gmail.com, I will endeavor to answer every email that comes in over the next uh, month or two. Don't pitch me movie ideas. I will not answer those. I'll throw them right out or TV show ideas or send me scripts. But if you want to engage on any of this stuff or talk about the way in which this show uh, is useful to you or not useful to you, I'm I'm willing to hear it. Um, all right, with my few more moments here with James, I want to turn to, because this idea of meaning in life is something I know you think about a lot and you write about a lot. You have a new book coming out where, which I, where I think you've gathered a lot of these thoughts and a lot of the stuff we're talking about, not the specific of how to react to Trump, but the new book, which is called Reinventing Yourself. You want to just talk about, when, first of when's it out? And want to just talk a little bit about what it is? So, sure. So Reinvent Yourself is coming out January 5th. And uh, basically, reinvention is something that's constantly happening in this economy. Like I just saw a Help Wanted ad uh, yesterday. Somebody needs a self-driving car engineer. So this is like a job that five years ago would have been science fiction. Who would have ever even sure. thought to train for such a job? And now somebody wants someone with those skills. So so not only is the economy and technology innovating, but we kind of internally always have to reinvent. Like you've seen personal situations in my life where I've had to very quickly to reinvent, to survive and to be a good parent and, and so on. Or, or to be a good businessman or, or to be a good creative person. So reinvention is something that happens on both the outside is being forced on us. And maybe the election is part of that. And reinvention is something that has to happen on the inside. So we could be the best potential we can be to, to, you know, if you do something for five years, you're going to get tired of it and you're going to want to reinvent. You, Brian, are the master of reinvention. You went from being a uh, talent management as a kid to en entertainment lawyer to then there was the ending of that. Like you were stuck and there was the fog where you, you're figuring out oh, what's the movie I'm going to write. You became yeah. a great screenwriter. I was never an entertainment lawyer. I did go to law school. But yes, right. We you invented ourselves. Business. I did a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And then, and then now you've gone from movies to television to podcasts. You were a stand-up comedian. Like you probably debated being a professional poker player. I don't know. So yes, that's the other, yes, the other existence. I, yes. That's so the we, other life I would have liked to have lived. For we, sure. we all grew up thinking that, okay, we're going to, um, 
our, our comma is going to start early. I'm James Altucher, lawyer, really early on. And I'm going to go to college, law school, law firm, partner, retire. But the comma changes now every few years, and it changes constantly. And you have to always have things in the fire inside of yourself where you're constantly learning and building skills and reinventing. So what I've done is I've studied the, not only my own life, but the lives of many people who have been through great reinventions, and I, and I write about the process. And so that's what the book's about. It's, it's exciting to me because to prepare for this podcast, I reread part of my book because I always forget something like right after I yeah. read it. And so I'm rereading and I'm like, man, I'm really glad I wrote this. I just learned something today from something. What I was wrote. that? What was that piece? Okay. That piece in particular, you'll, you'll find this funny. So I, I summoned up enough courage during my high school years to ask out eight girls and all of them said no to me. And so I wrote, I wrote a chapter on what I learned from each of these eight women, girls, really, you know, rejecting me from the ages of 12 to 18. And it's like, I learned incredible stuff and I'm glad I wrote that down. I'm reading it all along the way in the cab right over here. Do you journal every day? I, I write every day. I don't journal every day. I've started doing it a little more on your advice, actually, that you've given on my podcast about the morning pages. But in general, I write with the idea of publishing. Do you have the idea right away? No. Sometimes I will, I will, uh, flit around a little bit to, to find the idea. Do you write like a thousand words every day? I write about a thousand words a day, between one and two thousand words a day. No matter what. No matter what. You have to every day because the, and you've probably felt this, the writing muscle atrophies and you want to be able to put two words together as, as easily and, and with as much that's, bravery I mean, as yeah, possible. That's why the journaling works. Cause even like, you know, when we're done writing the last episode of the season of the show, I don't get up the next day and start writing for next. I don't get up the next day and start feeling like I have to fill pages. Did you get up? But at I all do the, next the journal. Day? <laughs> yeah, but I do get up and journal. But and then that at least I'm writing three long. You know, I'm writing close to a thousand, some amount of words, three longhand pages, no matter what, every day. I mean, I I I've been writing every day for probably uh, twenty five years. So. But I don't always publish every day, but it's but I don't consider it journaling because I always write with the idea that this might be seen by somebody else. And I know you write uh, specifically like Julia Cameron's morning pages, yeah, which I think is very a useful technique, by the way. It is, dude. You've been a really good friend to me. Um, and during this time period, I mean, you reached out a couple times to sort of say like, "Hey, come on, let's do this thing." And uh, well, and also by the way, I not to. Circle jerk here, but you bet you were, you and Amy both were great friends to me when I needed it most. So I really, it's like an unbelievable appreciation. Well, of course. And, um, you know, th this, uh, I'm glad we had this conversation. You know, your work is really valuable to people. And I guess if I, when I think about this and I just take this sort of quick lesson from, from this for myself, you know, there is absolutely a value in people who don't know your work getting to engage with it. Um, because no matter what the stuff you talk about, write about, think about helps people, uh, make distinctions in their own lives and grow. And I guess there's probably some intrinsic value in growth right up until the moment the scythe does come down from the sky and well, think about Louis cut your neck off. So if that's the case, think about Louis L'Amour. Okay. Obviously sure. wrote a hundred novels, sold 150 million copies first novel he wrote at age 52 when he was 80 years old he said uh i feel like i'm starting to be a good writer <laughs> so it's like it never stops reinvention learning 
and and the joy of it. Like you can't be disappointed. You have to take part in the joy of learning and experiencing new things each day and, and learning from, from things each day. Well, I, I think this is a great moment in the world to try and learn something each day and to put a practice in place of checking in, not taking things for granted, and finding a, a really considered way to move forward. And this was a great, for me, uh, I'm sure that this is a little bit self-indulgent for some of the listeners, and for that, I do apologize. But for me, this was a good concrete step to think about um, how to move forward. So thanks for doing this, James. No problem. Thanks People for having can, me on. People can find you on Twitter uh, at- Jay Altucher. And at um, jamesaltucher.com, also the James Altucher Show podcast, which you've been on many times. I, I highly recommend people listen to the, the, my episodes with you. And then finally, my book, Reinvent Yourself, or my earlier book, Choose Yourself. Uh, people, you find me, uh, the moment BK, at gmail.com and at Brian Koppelman at Twitter. If there are guests that you want to hear on this show, tweet at me and let me know who they are. You don't have to limit it to writers, artists, political figures. Who do you want to hear me talk to? Who do you want me to ask questions to? Uh, it's all up in the air right now. Uh, I'm totally uh, open to figuring out how to uh, engage in this conversation going forward. Thanks. Thanks.